Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book or to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The Old Testament book of Ruth and the book of Ruth in chapter number four. Ruth in chapter number four. We are currently in a series dealing with the lineage of Christ. And there are 64 generations of, for the Lord Jesus Christ, starting from Adam all the way up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And what we're doing in this series is that we're just walking through and do a character study on each one of the 64 people within that lineage of Jesus Christ. And of course taking a pit stop for some of the important women that show up inside of this lineage. This is going to be one of the blocks where we actually hit a couple names all at once as we tie them together and watch God's providence. One of the things that we see in the lineage of Jesus Christ is not everyone comes from a perfect family. As we've seen in the last several messages, we've seen three families that have been torn up, three families that have been broken, three families that have been uh, cracked. In fact, we saw in the lineage of Jesus Christ that there was even a single parent home inside of this lineage. And we could see that God is still working through it. That whereas man looks like he messes up everything and ruins everything, we have such a great God that he can still use human mistakes and still get his wonderful will accomplished. Which is an encouragement to all of us that we can trust God no matter what. And so if you don't mind, I would love for you to take the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Remember the book of Ruth is found early in the Bible that we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we start going to the historical section of Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So Ruth in chapter number four, and if you don't mind, in Ruth chapter number four, let's begin looking at the list of names that we find in the book of Ruth chapter four, and notice with me starting at verse number 18. This here is going to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, picking it up from Perez where we had left off before. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron began Ram, and Ram began Amenadab, and Amenadab Abinadab beget Nation, and Nation beget Solomon, and Solomon beget Boaz, and Boaz beget Obed, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David. And here we have this lineage, and we're going to come back to it in a second, but if you don't mind, hold your finger here and turn with me to the book, uh, book of Ruth, chapter number 1. You were in Ruth 4. Now look with me in Ruth chapter 1, and I want to point something else out to you. And we're going to tie this together in a very interesting way. The book of Ruth, chapter number 1. And notice with me in verse number 22. Ruth, chapter 1, in verse number 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley 
harvest. Now as we take this lineage of Jesus Christ that we find in the book of Ruth chapter 4. And we also tie it into a location of Bethlehem found in Ruth chapter 1 verse 22. I would like to do a summary of this lineage here. Dealing with the idea from bondage to Bethlehem. From bondage to Bethlehem. With the Lord's help, we're going to see what is called this bondage lineage from bondage to Bethlehem. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And I count it a great privilege to be able to open up the Bible tonight. One of the things I enjoy the most is being able to take threads from different parts of Scripture. To be able to put them together, tie them in a knot, and see how they connect together. And I'm asking that you would help us to do this. Even more, I'm asking that we would be able to learn more about you and whom you are. And that we can trust you. You, that you're the God who sees the end from the beginning. Help us to understand more of whom you are tonight. And let us respond to you because of that knowledge. Fill me with your precious spirit, Lord, because we can trust you to do your own work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you don't mind, just to keep a finger there in the book of Ruth, chapter number 4. We're going to turn back there in just a moment. But we need to start for context's sake in the book of Exodus in chapter number 1. The book of Exodus in chapter number 1. Now, we've already been hitting the lineage of Christ and we've already kind of traversed through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. We understood that... <coughs> That the book of Genesis covers the early history of humankind. Remember that Genesis is not a mythology and it's not a story. It is actually history. And through it we find the lineage of Jesus Christ starting at Adam. Adam had a son by the name of Seth. And we see Seth's lineage listed in Genesis chapter 5. We know in that lineage towards the end there was a man by the name of Noah. And Noah found grace in God's sight because he walked with God. And God sent a worldwide flood that rescued Noah and his three sons. Well, Noah had a specific son by the name of Shem that carried on this lineage. And we could see Shem's lineage listed all the way through the book of Genesis chapter number 11. From Shem, we can... Uh, lineage, we came to Terah, the father of Abraham, who actually served false gods in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. Well, Abraham was called out of that false worship to worship the God of heaven. And so Abraham followed after God. Abraham had a son of promise by the name of Isaac. And Isaac was born when Abraham was close to a hundred years old. Well, Isaac at the beginning of his life was a picture of Jesus Christ. But towards the end of his life, he stopped following God and began to invest into his own flesh, his own carnal nature. And because of that, he had a divided home when he wanted to bypass God's will and get his will accomplished. But let me remind you that it doesn't matter what man does, God's still going to get what he wants accomplished. Well, because of the nature of that broken home, there was a man 
who was a son of Isaac by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was a liar. And he lied and manipulated and schemed to get his way through life. And by the way, there is a payday someday. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so because of the lying that Jacob had done in his earlier days, to manipulate, to get his way, to fight, to scratch, to uh, do whatever he could to get his way, He ended up being manipulated against himself and having a father-in-law who lied against him. Who lied against him against his wife and he ended up getting the wife he did not want in addition to the wife that he did want in order to get more work out of him as a contract. Well, we know that Jacob had 12 sons, and out of those sons, he had a son by the name of Judah. Now, Judah had made some mistakes in his life, and he didn't raise his kids for the Lord. And his kids purposely rebelled against God's will, and so they were taken out. And that left his widowed daughter-in-law, who decided to take matters in her own hands. And through the manipulation and fighting, she ended up having children with her former father-in-law, and she was left to raise her son, Ferez, in a single-parent home. Doesn't sound like a fun home at all. Well, as time goes on, we know that another one of Judah's brothers, Jacob's sons, was a man by the name of, (coughs) excuse me, of Joshua. Not Joshua, Joseph. And Joseph, uh, was sold into slavery by his ten other brothers. Can you imagine that? And again, that was part of the consequence of Jacob and his manipulations and fighting against, that his favorite son, daddy's boy, was sold into slavery. But let me remind you that God knows what he's doing. And so God had placed Joseph in a place where even though he was sold into slavery and he was lied against, he was Uh, in his own employer, his employer's wife accused him of trying to take advantage of her, even though he did not, that the man chose his wife rather than his faithful servant and threw Joseph in jail. Now, Joseph didn't complain. He didn't get bitter, but he still served God even when he was in jail and there was no other believer nearby. And God didn't forget Joseph. In fact, he brought Joseph out of prison and through wisdom, God had brought Joseph to the place where he was second in command of all of Egypt right next to Pharaoh. Part of the wisdom that he had is that he helped Egypt prepare for a famine that was coming of seven years. And so during the seven years of famine that Egypt had plenty. So much that the rest of the nations had to come to Egypt to buy their grain. And it was Joseph who was in charge of the entire thing. Well as time went on that Joseph's brother and his dad needed uh, needed food. And so they had to go to Joseph and there Joseph eventually revealed himself as the brother they sold into slavery. Can you imagine what a heartbreak that would be and what a fear that would be if you had sold your brother into slavery and then claimed to your dad that he was dead and then years later you were facing the second most powerful person in Egypt and it was that brother that you sold into slavery. Don't you think that you might be in a little bit of trouble? Don't you think that your life might be on the line? 
Well, again, because Joseph did not have any bitterness and had forgiven his brothers, instead of condemning them or killing them or enslaving them, he saved them from their famine and brought Joseph or Jacob and the twelve siblings, brought them to Egypt, and there at Egypt gave them a place to live. And they begin to multiply. And thus we find this account in the book of Exodus in chapter number 1. The book of Exodus chapter 1. And notice with me if you don't mind in verse number 1. Exodus 1 and verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. So Jacob is the father. Here are the sons. Verse number 2. Reuben. Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for J Joseph was in Egypt already. So what this tells us is that here Joseph's brothers, they had already been married and many of them had already had children. And so the whole clan of 12 brothers, plus their dad, plus the wives, plus whatever children they had, there was 70 of them that came from the Canaan land into Egypt. And it doesn't count Joseph and his family because they were already there. So 70 of his family came to Egypt to live with them. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse 6. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled up with them. And so here is 70 people that came from the promised land into Egypt. They settled in the land of Goshen. And in just 100 years time, God had blessed them. And this band of 70 people multiplied to 1 million people. That's a lot of people. And after 100 years time, can you imagine the Pharaoh looking at his land and seeing in the midst of his land there's one million people that are not Egyptian that are living in his backyard. And this happened to be a Pharaoh who was never taught about Joseph and what his family lived. All he could see was a military blind spot. Here was a place where they were vulnerable. Notice if you don't mind in verse number 8. And there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it came to pass, when they falleth out any war, they join unto our enemies and fight against us. So get them up out of the land. So here the Pharaoh's tasked with a choice. Here's a group of people that's more than us. And they're mightier than us. And if we have an invading army that comes, what would stop these people from in our backyard to rise up and to conquer us? We have to deal with this problem. So what do they do? Notice with me in verse number 11. Therefore did they set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities of Python and Ramses. So what happened is that this new Pharaoh decided he was going to enslave these Hebrew people that were in their backyard. He saw that God had blessed them and multiplied them. 
So I have to do something to get in control. So he put them in bondage and put the children of Israel and made them slaves of the Egyptian people. His hope was to break the Hebrew spirits, to shorten their lifespans, to maybe discourage people from getting married, get people where they say it's not worth it to bring a child into this world. What kind of parent would you be to have a child in the midst of this? That was their hope. Their hope was to get them so discouraged that they would stop multiplying. And maybe even cause the Hebrew people to give up and stop being Hebrews. And maybe even join the Egyptian people to break their spirits. So if you don't mind, turn back to me to the book of Ruth, chapter number 4, where we left off. And let's cover this list of names. And let's explain what happened to them in history. We know that... God had called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees to follow after God. God had given Abraham a child of promise by the name of Isaac. Isaac was given an, a son to carry on that lineage by the name of Judah. Judah had, or Joseph, uh, Jacob, I'm, too many J names, forgive me. So you had Jacob. Jacob had 12 children. Out of those 12 children, Judah was the one who was going to carry on that lineage. He had twin boys, and it was Perez who was going to carry this in. Notice with me, if you don't mind, Ruth chapter 4 and verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Now, Judah and Tamar already had Perez and Zerah when they went to Egypt. So Judah went, he brought Tamar with him, and Perez and Zerah came with him. Now, during this time, Perez grew, and he had a son by the name of Hezron. So, Perez is in Egypt, he has Hezron. During, the time of, during this time of being in Egypt, Hezron had a son by the name of Ram. So Ram was born before Joseph died. So before Joseph died, here's another generation that's born. Ram is born. Now, notice, if you don't mind, in verse number 19, And Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab was born inside of Egyptian captivity and was about 25 years old when Moses was born. So they had been in captivity for a little while. Moses is born. Um, Aminadab is already about 25 so Amenadab had a child during this captivity by the name of Nation. Nation was born while Moses was actually living in the palace. And Nation was about 60 years old when the exodus began. So as uh, Moses, remember, he was raised in the palace about 40 years old. He was chased out of Egypt and fled into the wilderness. He stayed in the wilderness for 80 years for. 40 years, so he's 80 years old when he comes back. And when he comes back, here we have, <coughs> excuse me, Nation, who is about 60 years old. Now, Solomon is the next child that is born, verse 20, and Amenadab beget Nation, and Nation beget Solomon. Solomon was born in the wilderness wanderings. So as the wilderness wanderings that are going on. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Solomon was born during this time of wandering. 
So just giving you a history of where people are born at. So they start in Egyptian captivity. And now we have a group of people. This lineage is continuing as God delivers them out of Egyptian bondage. And as they're traveling in the wilderness. Now Solomon, we'll talk a little bit more about him. But he meets a girl who has, a Gentile girl who has lots of faith. And this is a girl in the city of Jericho by the name of Rahab. And here is Solomon who marries Rahab because of her great faith. And here is a Gentile who joins the family. Well, notice Solomon and Rahab, they beget a son by the name of Boaz. And by the way, Boaz is going to be pretty important because he marries another Gentile girl by the name of Ruth. And one day, Boaz and Ruth, they have a son. And they name his son Obed. And one day Obed has a son. And his name is Jesse. And one day Jesse has a son. And has another son. And 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 then a bouncing baby boy. By the name of David. And here is this lineage. That is it's carrying on. Now. Inside of the story of Ruth, as we had saw in chapter 1 and verse 22, this all takes place in a place called Bethlehem. And so as God is preparing a lineage of people who are going to form this tree that's going to lead to Jesus Christ, not only is God preparing the people, but God is also preparing a place. And this is the place of Bethlehem. So not only did we see this bondage in Egypt, let's now trace the history of Bethlehem. The history of Bethlehem. Now the first time Bethlehem is mentioned is found in the book of Genesis chapter 35. And you don't have to hold your place anymore. We could turn straight to Genesis 35. And I want you to travel with me and find this little city. Now may I remind you that Bethlehem even to this day is not a big city. It is not a big city at all. It was never important. It was never a Paris. It was never a New York. It was never a London, England. It was never a Los Angeles. It was always a small backwater town. The biggest claim to fame that it had outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it happened to be nearby Jerusalem, but it was its own separate small backwater town. And yet God prepares this small little backwater town to be one of the most important cities in all of history. And the first mention of it is in the book of Genesis chapter 35. And we find in verse number 16, an important event that occurs. Genesis 35 and verse 16 and they, this is dealing with Jacob and his wife Leah and his wife Rachel and the 11 kids, or the 12 kids that they have, 11 boys, one girl, and Rachel who is great with child right now. Notice with me in Genesis 35 and verse 16. And they journeyed from Bethel and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed and she had hard label. Labor. Notice that word Ephrath. This is the old name for Bethlehem. So guess where little Benjamin was born and guess where Rachel died? Bethlehem. 
this place of Bethlehem, Rachel died as Jacob was returning to this homeland. Now years later, in the book of Joshua, this land was given to the tribe of Judah. And Solomon settled in this land with his Gentile bride. What was his bride, Solomon? Rahab. Rahab from Jericho. And so they settled and they began to build on this land to the little town of Bethlehem. Now over 400 years after Rachel's death, two women arrive in Bethlehem. One, uh, let's turn there, the book of Ruth chapter number one. Ruth chapter number one. And Ruth chapter one we see two women that now arrive in this little town of Bethlehem. They don't realize how important this entry into this small little backwater town is going to be. So important that we're reading about it today. Notice if you don't mind in Ruth chapter number 1. And notice in verse 22 we see these two women come in. 400 years after Rachel's death. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley center, uh, season, a harvest, sorry. And so here is Ruth, and here is Naomi. And they walk in here. Ruth is a widow. Her husband has died. And as she walks in here, it's not too long after that she meets the most eligible bachelor in all the land. Boaz. And it just so happens that Boaz, not only is he the uh, most eligible bachelor, but he is also related to her, uh, her dead husband. And according to the law, he was allowed to marry her and pick up the inheritance. And she joined his family. And thus, without her knowing about it, she, by her faith, now was engrafted into the lineage of Christ. And soon, they have a son by the name of Obed. Oh, what a great history. Well, Ruth and her family lives here, and they have kids, and they have grandkids, and eventually great-grandkids. And one of these great kids, grandkids, is going to be David, who will eventually be the king of all of Israel. By the way, where was his hometown? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. So David would grow up to be king. Now one of his sons, Absalom, would start a rebellion. And one of the people that helped him during this time of Absalom's rebellion was a man by the name of Berizai. Now after the rebellion, David offered a job to Berizai and said, You've helped me out so much, I want to do something for you. But Berizai refused and said, I'm too old, I can't help you, I don't want to help you. He says, but why don't you take my son? And the son's name was Chimham. Now, Berizai dis disappears from Scripture, but uh, Chimham comes back again. Let's see where he appears in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 41. Now, Jeremiah, of course, fast-forwards another 600-something years. Jeremiah is written uh, about 586, close to that time, near the fall of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah chapter 41, we see an interesting account. So about 400, 500 years past King David. Notice with me in Jeremiah chapter 41. 
And notice with me in verse number 17. Jeremiah 41 and verse 17. And they departed. This is some travelers who were leaving the city. And they departed and dwelt. Notice this. In the habitation of Chimham. Which is by Bethlehem. To go to enter into the city of Egypt. Now at this time, people don't realize how important Bethlehem is going to be. It's just making a mention that, hey, there's some travelers going. And as they travel, they stay at the habitation of Chinham. By the way, that's a different way of saying the inn of Chinham. Now, the lodging place of Chinham. So what happened is that David, because of rewarding his faithful servant Chinham and Berizai, he gave him some land and said, hey, I live in Bethlehem. Why don't I give you a track of land outside of where I lived at? And you can make it yours. You do whatever you want. Chinham said, thank you. That's a good thing. And he built an inn. It's the only inn in town. And he builds this inn so that way travelers can travel through as they're traveling to Egypt, as they're making their way through. And nobody knows that this is going to be a big deal. And so they have this little inn that's built in this small little backwater town, not knowing what it's going to happen. But you know what? Years later, a small little couple, little known, nobody knows who they are is making their way because of taxation. And they have to go report in the city of their lineage so they can make a report. And as they show up to Bethlehem, guess which inn they show up in? This very same inn that Mary and Joseph show up. And there at this inn, they have a little baby by the name of Jesus. And God had prepared not only a lineage, but he had prepared a place. If you don't mind, let me show you one more portion of scripture. Turn with me to the minor prophet section of Micah. Micah. Now Micah is towards the end of the New Testament. The book of Micah chapter number 5. The book of Micah chapter number 5 if you're in Jeremiah, just keep turning the other direction. You should come, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you start coming to the Minor Prophets section, starting with Hosea. And in the middle of the Minor Prophets section, you come to a prophet by the name of Micah. And in Micah chapter 5, we see a prophecy that God makes that it's going to end up being an important prophecy. Notice with me in the book of Micah chapter 5 and notice with me and verse number 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah. Now remember I talked about Ephratah before. That was his ancient name. So here's Bethlehem mentioned once again in prophecy though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Meaning that a Bethlehem out of all the thousands of villages within Judah you're the smallest. You're one of the smallest. You're a backwater little known town. You're worth nothing. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You know, for those before Jesus' time, Whenever they would see Bethlehem pop up, they would go, 
okay, so they're mentioning this little town. Not realizing that God the whole time, just as he's weaving this lineage of Christ through the people, he's also at the same time preparing this small little town for the birth of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to tell you here is that we have a God who is outside of time and bigger than history. In fact, we could say this, that history is actually his story. Because he is putting it together for one moment in time to climax at the birth of Jesus Christ. And whereas man is marching along just trying to maintain control of their own feeble lives. God sees the whole tapestry and is weaving it together and preparing a group of people. Preparing a lineage of people and preparing a place for this one time. Micah is given as a prophecy about 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And God knew it the whole time. Let me tell you, we have a God who's in charge of all of history. By the way, why is it such a big deal that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Because of who he was. Jesus was just not a baby who was born. Jesus Christ was God robed in flesh who came and dwelt among us. He was born as a humble baby in a manger. In a backwoods town without any pomp or circumstance. He was born and he humbled himself. And he lived the same life that you and I lived. He went through the same temptations. The same troubles and the same heartbreaks. Then Jesus Christ died on the cross to die for your sins. And he died for mine. Why was this such an important event? Because we recognize Jesus was born for one reason. He was born to die. Jesus Christ died a cruel death like none other. He was buried on a borrowed tomb and then Jesus Christ arose again on the third day. When Jesus Christ arose on the third day it proved two things. It proved that Jesus was indeed God and it proved that God was satisfied with the payment that was made. You see why is this a big deal to study these threads that God is putting together? Because it also shows us that God had in mind the whole time a way to pay for your sins. And to pay for mine. And he's made it so we could study it. And we could see the wisdom of God. And let me tell you. If God could foresee all of history. And he could foresee this small little town. God also knows what sins you've committed. And he also knows that he was enough to forgive everything that you've ever done. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. God still loves you. And he still wants to forgive you of your sins. You say, what is this sins you talk about? Well, the Bible explains that sins is any time that we've broken God's law. You said, what have I broken? Well, we have something in the Bible called the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments is God's rules of holiness. One of those rules says, thou shalt that we're supposed to honor our father and mother. We could say it this way. That we're supposed to obey our folks. Well you know. I've disobeyed that commandment. How many of you have ever disobeyed that commandment? You've disobeyed your folks. Well we, we've all broken the law. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments. Another rule. Thou shall not bear false witness. We could say it this way. Don't tell lies. Well I'm a pastor of a church. But I've told lies. How many of you have ever told a lie before? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar, right? We've all told lies. 
The Bible says, for we've all sinned to come short of God's glory. The Bible says, in order to go to heaven, in order to be with Him, we have to be perfect. But we've all sinned and come short of that glory. We've all missed the mark. The Bible goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible says because we've broken God's law, because we've told a lie, because we've disobeyed our folks. And let me tell you, we've done more than just that. The Bible says because we've broken God's law, we deserve death. That word death carries the idea of separation. The Bible gives an indication that physical death carries the idea of our soul leaving our body. For example, if we had a casket here and we were having a funeral, we would have a body inside of the casket and we would say that person is dead. Why would we say they were dead? Because their body is here, but who makes what makes them them is gone. It's separated out. There's a separation. Well, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. And the Bible exclaims that there's only two places to go when we die. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. Do you know why man goes to hell? Because we don't deserve to be with God. Now, that's some bad news. Here's the good news that God didn't want to see a single person go to that awful place called hell. So what God did is that God robed himself in flesh. And this was his plan from the very beginning. That God would come down and robe himself like one of us. And then Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for that wage. To pay for that payment that you and I owed God. What's more is he did it for free. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. But... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, in order to go to heaven, you don't have to go to church. To go to heaven, you don't have to pay money to the church. To go to heaven, you don't have to help little old ladies cross the street. You say, then how do I go to heaven? By having your sins forgiven. How? By accepting Jesus Christ to pay your payment. For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All you have to do to go to heaven is accept Jesus as your personal Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty you, were, you owe God. To save for yourself from the death you deserve, the separation from hell. All you have to do is accept that free gift and God promised and God can't lie. That's why the most famous Bible verse in all of the word of God is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that you could put your name in that verse? Let me use mine for example. For God so loved Scotty. That he gave his only begotten son. That if Scotty should believe in him. He should not perish. But have everlasting life. That is a personal promise that God made to you. And that if you would just believe on him. To accept him. To trust his promise. God made a promise. And he cannot lie. That he would forgive you of all of your sins. That you should never perish or go to that awful place called hell. But instead have ever.
everlasting life. You said, how can I trust that God will keep his word? Well, we watched in the Bible as God had showed this small little town of Bethlehem. And that God promised that his son Jesus was going to be born there. 700 years before it happened. And did it happen? Yes, it did. God kept his word. And if God kept his word on that, don't you think he could keep his word if he promised to forgive you of your sins? That he would if you would just accept that free gift. Let me tell you, dear friend, the greatest thing that can happen tonight is that if you don't know for sure that your sins are forgiven, the greatest thing that can happen tonight is for you to get that settled. You say, how do I do that? Well, you don't need a preacher, but let me tell you, it would be my privilege to take the Bible and to show you from God's word how you can know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. It'd be my great privilege, but let me tell you, it's just as simple as calling upon God's promise. You don't have to use fancy words. There's no magic words. There's no secret formula. It's the best you know how just to ask God for that free gift to forgive you of your sins, to pay that price. God would be glad to forgive you. If you would just be willing to accept that free gift. Let me tell you, if you don't know for sure, let me tell you that you can know for sure. For those of you who do know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, let me encourage you once again that God keeps His Word. Maybe they're struggling with something. Maybe you just say, I think God wants this to happen, but I'm just not sure. Well, if God give His promise on it, you can trust Him. You can trust Him no matter what you're going through. Sometimes you go through dark times. Maybe you go through valleys. Let me tell you that God never fails. And He sees the end for beginning. And He could take even our stupid human mistakes. I heard someone say this the other day. That when God makes a call, He already factors in all of our stupidity. Isn't that comforting? That when God asks you to do something, when God brings you to pass, he's already factored in all of our mistakes. And still said, will you do this for me anyways? What a great God that we have. That he sees everything and he's able to factor it in. He has all the information and he's still willing to forgive you. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. He knows all of your sins and he can forgive those. For those of you who said, I tried to serve God but I failed, don't worry. God's already seen those and he's factored that in. What a great comforting God that we have. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.